This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to remind you, peace of mind is tough to come by these days unless you have a Liberty Safe. With a Liberty Safe, you won't worry when you leave the house because you'll know your valuables are protected. And right now, you can get free delivery to your home on any Liberty Safe. Go to LibertySafe.com for factory direct pricing. LibertySafe.com, made in the USA, lifetime warranty, and peace of mind. LibertySafe.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy uh, Saturday. Thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter and uh, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, I got. I just want to be honest with you. I am super excited for tonight, and, I, and I'm a little bit nervous. So I, I got to voice this so I can put it aside for the next three hours and then focus on this and then focus on the next thing. Um, I'm going to be emceeing a fantastic event tonight, and uh, Taya Kyle is going to be the main speaker, wife of Chris Kyle, of course, the American sniper. Uh, I'm nervous. <laughs> There's going to be like 900 people there and a lot of money being thrown around. Uh, it's a charity. Organ- it's a, a fundraiser for one of my favorite organizations in town. It's called Solutions for Change, and they're dedicated to ending family homelessness, but they don't do it. By giving out soup and, and cots. It's not a shelter. It's a place, it's a, they have a thousand day university program, Solutions University program, where people enroll, they get up every morning at 5 a.m., they work, they learn job skills, they learn parenting skills, they have to stay sober, of course, and they go through this thousand day program and they graduate and then they have their own job, they're paying their own rent, they're buying their own houses, and they're self sustaining and independent for the rest of their lives. It's beautiful, it's the answer. It's absolutely the answer. I'm so passionate about it. I'm so fired up about the cause. It's solutionsforchange.org if you want to learn more. And uh, it's going to be spreading across the country soon. And this is it. So I'm just really fired up about it. And Taya Kyle's amazing. Um, read her book, please. It's called American Wife, I think. Um, the American Wife or American Wife. I don't know if there's a V in front of it or not. But Taya's awesome. So I'm just excited tonight. All right. Let's get that off my chest. Now we can focus on the task at hand. Uh, we got to talk about that smirk. The smirk. The smirk heard around the world. You saw it. <laughs> you saw the smirk. When was the debate? Thursday, Wednesday. Wednesday, you witnessed the first punch that landed on Donald Trump. So on Tuesday... My local show, we talked a lot about how you just don't attack Donald Trump. This is my advice to all the other candidates. Don't even try to attack Donald Trump. And don't try to be like Trump because he's better at it than you are. I think we said that on Fox News a week or so ago, too. Don't try to attack Trump. It's not going to go well for you. But I did not anticipate a move like Carly's. My point was saying, or my, my point was, don't get up and say, Oh, Trump's a fake conservative. He's a progressive. He supports government-run health care and higher taxes. And he supports Hillary Clinton. Don't do that. And I think some people, including Carly, tried to nail him on the fact that he, you know, four of his companies declared bankruptcy and stuff like that. But none of those will land ever. None of those will ever stick. Trump has answers for all that stuff. And you're going to look like a fool if you do that. And a couple of them tried and it didn't work. But Carly did land a punch the other day, Trump wasn't expecting it, and he could do nothing back other than smile. 
<laughs> and I loved the smile. The smile was so beautiful because it was like, good one. Nice. It was, it, it, was like, it was like he was proud of her. Like, good for you. <laughs> Way good. I got nothing back. I'm just going to smile. Well done. Well done. I think of it like uh, a boxing coach training a young fighter. And the young fighter's trying to land some punches on the, on the, on the trainer who's a master. Maybe not boxing, but karate or whatever. And the young gun can't land a punch. And he's trying, he's trying. And the guy's blocking him and moving out of the way and all that stuff. And then the young gun finally lands a blow right in the nose. Punches the trainer, the sensei, right in the nose. And the sensei doesn't get mad. Just says, nice. Good work. And then gets right back at it. And that's what Trump did on Wednesday. Now, two background points to this joke right here. You know these already. I'm going to go fast. Uh, the Rolling Stones article from a couple weeks ago where Donald Trump said, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Can you imagine that? The face of our next president. I mean, she's a woman and I'm not supposed to say bad things, but come on, folks. Really? Are we serious? That's the background. And the second point is. The key to this is what happened a few minutes before when Trump and Bush were going back and forth. Remember a couple months ago or a month ago, Jeb said we already spent too much money on women's health care or something like that. And then he said he misspoke and Trump was all over him. And Trump was like, no, I know what you meant. I heard what you said. People know what you said. People know what you meant. We heard you. And then a minute or so later, we saw the first punch on Trump, that has landed. And if you could only see Trump smile after this line right here, clip one. Ms. Fiorina, I do want to ask you about this. In an interview last week in Rolling Stone magazine, Donald Trump said the following about you. Quote, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Can you imagine that, the face of our next president? Mr. Trump later said he was talking about your persona, not your appearance. Please feel free to respond what you think about his persona. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me, Mr. Trump said that he heard Mr. Bush very clearly and what Mr. Bush said. I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. I think she's got a beautiful face and I think she's a beautiful woman. <laughs> he had nothing. Yeah, nothing at all. It's great. And what makes that line so good, and obviously the most memorable line of the three-hour debate, um, is it wasn't rehearsed, right? Because it needed the context of what happened a minute or two before that in order to, to work. So that's why it was a, it was a real raw line. And uh, she nailed it, and he had nothing back, and, and uh, it just, just smiled. And she humbled him. You know what? Did you notice that, like, there there was like a 30-minute stretch during the debate when Donald Trump didn't say anything. Oh, I thought he ran to the bathroom or left town or something. I don't know what happened. He just left. <laughs> My wife and I were watching. I said, Where do you is he still here? I didn't even see the camera on him. Now, part of that's probably because he showed up for a reality show and a policy debate broke out, and he's like, well, I'm not going to jump in on this. But either way, he didn't, he didn't jump in. So he came out swinging immediately against Rand Paul, he came out swinging for no reason. Like Rand Paul wasn't even mentioned in the very first question to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump just goes, you know, attacking him. So that was the beginning. The very first thing out of Donald Trump's mouth, the very first thing after the intro was an attack on Rand Paul. By the end of the three hours, he's given high fives and back slaps to the guys next to him. 
<laughs> right? You see that? He humbled out, and it was because of Carly's uh, left hook or <laughs> right jab. I don't know exactly what it was. And it's going to be interesting. I, you know, I think we may see, I'm not kidding, I think we may see a kinder, gentler Donald Trump. I wouldn't be surprised. I really wouldn't because the attacks, you know what he's done? He's, he's established himself already. Right? He's established himself over here. He's cleared an area out for himself. And I think he's going to cut it with the personal attacks because now he can operate from this position that he's created. And, I don't know, maybe start running his campaign against Hillary from this point forward. All that being said, just want everyone to know that Donald Trump hasn't even started his campaign yet. <laughs> you know, we've been saying from the jump that he's not even running a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation, which is still true. But that hasn't even started. And you think, what do you mean? It's, he's been going on for like two months. Mm-mm, hasn't started. He still has his greatest weapon in his back pocket, Donald does. Ivanka. His daughter. Ivanka is incredibly impressive. My wife loves her. And so do the cameras. You know what I'm saying? And if it looks like for a moment... Trump's numbers start to level out, or heaven forbid they drop at all, then out comes Ivanka. She is beautiful, she is articulate, and incredibly successful. And she will be on the front of every newspaper for weeks talking about her dad. And everyone in the country will be spellbound. (laughs) And it's also going to be great because there's a lot of people who don't trust what Donald Trump says about women. But then they'll see the daughter he raised. And actions speak louder than words. And no one has a person in their corner like Donald does with his daughter, Ivanka. Just throwing that out there. And she's not going to make an appearance until his polls start to, uh, start to go down. Because it was a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, he said uh, Ivanka's going to... No, it was after Labor Day. It was right before Labor Day. He said, oh, Ivanka's going to start coming out with me after, the, after Labor Day. She hasn't yet. So they're just waiting. And then when Ivanka comes out, that's when you know uh, the campaign for Donald Trump has really begun. 1-800-760-KFMB. 1-800... Uh, excuse me. Pff, wrong number. That's my, week, that's my weekday number. 1-888-900-3393. Apologies. I want to come back with uh, one more Trump exchange. And then we're done talking about Trump for the rest of the show. I promise. Uh, One exchange he had with Ben Carson on taxes. I think this is very important. I want to give a highlight um, from this part of the debate here. Because I think Ben Carson uh, did an excellent job. And you be the judge if uh, Donald Trump did as well. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. We're listening to Mike Slater. Wrap up our debate conversation here. we got other things to uh, chat about, other things going on in the country, in the world, believe it or not. Uh, but I thought this was one of the best answers from uh, Ben Carson about taxes. Clip two. 
Dr. Carson, you support scrapping the entire tax code and replacing it with a flat tax based on the principle of tithing from the Bible. If you make $10 billion, you pay $1 billion in taxes. If you make $10, you pay $1 in taxes. Donald Trump believes in progressive taxation. He says it's not right that rich people pay the same as the poor. Tell Donald Trump why his ideas on taxes are wrong. It's all about America. You know, the people who say the guy who paid a billion dollars because he had 10, he's still got $9 billion left. That's not fair. We need to take more of his money. That's called socialism. That doesn't work so well. What made America into a great nation was the fact that we said, that guy just put in a billion dollars. Let's create an environment that's even more conducive to his success so that next year he can put in $2 billion. And that's the kind of thing that helps us to grow. We can't grow by continuing to take a piece of pie and dividing it and redistributing it. How good is that answer? How good? I mean, that, that answer is perfection. And here's why. Where do I start? Um, the fact that he, so a lot of times conservatives will, 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 we would have, a lot of times conservatives would have answered that question. Oh, the guy who made $10 billion we want to create an environment where next year he can make $20 billion. And that's true. But when we say it like that, and we know what we mean because we want everyone to be successful. And when we say we want someone who made $10 billion to next year make $20 billion, we're also saying we want the person who made 50000 to make 100000 Okay, We get that. But to a lot of people in the country, they hear that, and all they hear is the rich getting richer. And for whatever reason, and this is very different than our frame of mind, but for their frame of mind... That's bad. Okay? They're like, oh, I don't want the person making $10 billion to be making $20 billion. But that's not what Donald Trump, or that's not what Ben Carson said. He didn't frame it like that. He framed it as let's create an environment where those rich can get richer so that they pay more in taxes. That same thing as what, he, as what you know, we used to say, but that appeals to more people. And, and the rich are going to be paying more in taxes, not with a higher income tax rate, not with higher tax rates, but just because they're making more money. That is brilliant. That is framed. The way he framed that argument is for the progressive and for the uh, people who are on the fence and people who you know, are inclined to believe the income inequality nonsense and all that stuff. He didn't say... We want everyone to get richer. I mean, he did. But he said, really, we want to create an environment where everyone gets richer so that the rich pay even more in taxes than they're paying right now. Who can deny that? That answer appeals to everyone. It's beautiful. There's more to this clip. Let's play the uh, second part here. Clip three. I think the thing about the flat tax, I know it very well, that I don't like is if you make $200 million a year, you pay 10%, you're paying very little relatively to somebody that's making... Fifty thousand dollars a year and has to hire H and R Block to do the work because it's so complicated. One thing I'll say to Ben is that we've had a graduated tax system for many years, so it's not a socialistic thing. What I'd like to do is, and I'll be putting in the plan in about two weeks, and I think people are going to like it. It's a major reduction in taxes. It's a major reduction for the middle class. The hedge fund guys won't like me as much as they like me right now. I know them all, but they'll pay more. I know people that are making a tremendous amount of money and paying virtually no tax, and I think it's unfair. All right, there's a lot to break down there in three minutes. 
he said the person who makes $200 million a year and pays 10% is paying very little relatively to the person who's making $50,000 a year and paying 10%. That's not right. That's wrong. That those two people, the person paying, the person making $20 million a year and the person making $50,000, they're paying relatively the exact same amount. They're each paying 10%. So by definition, a flat tax means that each person is paying relative to the income they make the same. That's the point of it, right? by definition. So that line from Trump makes no sense. They, they are paying the person who makes $200 million under a flat tax system. The person who makes $200 million, the person who makes $50,000 are paying, by definition, relatively the exact same, 10%. And then he says the reason, I don't even know what he said. It's not about H&R Block, right? The person who makes $50,000 a year has to hire H&R Block because it's so complicated. That's why he's against the flat tax. That's one of the other perks of the flat tax is that it's not complicated and H&R Block will go out of business, as would the IRS, essentially. But H&R Block would because everyone just takes their income and multiplies it by 0.1 and they're done. <laughs> and Donald Trump said, I don't, I don't know what he said, but he said yeah, that's reason against the flat tax because it's the tax rate's so complicated today. I don't get it. And then he made the argument that we've had a progressive tax for so long, therefore it's not a socialist thing. Did you hear that? He said, oh, it doesn't bend. As far as it being a socialist thing, I mean, we've had it for a long time, so it's not a socialist thing. Is that the new standard of if something's socialist or not? If it's been around for a long time? <laughs> that's our it's our news okay good to know i didn't know that that i didn't know the amount of time that the program's been in existence has any factor on whether or not it's a socialist thing but if we're going to play that game all right i i guess that's like saying if, if we took uh a program from the great leap forward in china and we brought it here we're like well it's not socialist i mean it's been around for a long time so I think we're better than that. But here's the thing that Trump nailed. Attacking the hedge fund guys. Very, very smart to attack the hedge fund guys. Because no one knows what hedge fund guys do. <laughs> and no one likes them. There are, there are no people in this country who defend the hedge fund guys. They don't exist. Unless you're a hedge fund guy. Even like when the president goes after oil companies... There's people, there's regular, average, everyday people who are like, well, wait a second. I don't know. I like the oil guys and the oil companies. I need oil. I, I need gasoline. Oil's important. So, you know. But there's no one, when Donald Trump attacks the hedge fund guys, no one says, well, wait a second. I like the hedge fund guys. Don't pick on them. Like, <laughs> so Trump is brilliant to attack them. Also, it neutralizes the attack against Trump that he's just a rich guy for the rich. Here you have a super rich guy attacking hedge fund people. So it's very, very smart. It's not good policy, but it's very good uh, rhetoric, campaigning. But again, it goes back. You know, he, he said that hedge fund guys get away with murder because uh, the way the tax code is written, it lets them get away with some things and pay for that and not for this and that and the other. And Trump says he wants to rewrite the tax code. But I, I mean, I got a better idea. Eliminate it. Start over. Flat or fair? That's the definite. That's the conversation that conservatives need to demand. I'm so sick of having a conversation of what the progressive tax rate should be. 
35% or 38% or 45% or 90%. Stop. The question should be, should we have a fair tax or a flat tax? We need to be making having that conversation across the country. Enough of this progressive taxation nonsense. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Last week, what a weird month it's been. It was last week was the um, anniversary of September 11th. 14th anniversary. And last it was last Friday. Did you know that there wasn't a single mention, not a single mention of September 11th on the front page of the New York Times on September 11th? Never forget, right? There was stuff about Iran. There was a story about the New York City police officer taking down uh, the tennis player, James Blake, outside of a hotel, thinking that he was a drug dealer. And there was a story about the, the upcoming debate, which was the other day. And there was a story about the economy of Brazil. Okay, there, There's your front page of the New York Times on September 11th. That's That's bad, isn't it? That's... Not a single mention. And I'll be honest, I always wonder how to cover September 11th. I guess for the maybe the first five years I was on the radio, so maybe, probably probably the 11th anniversary. So we did we went big on the 10th. The 10th anniversary we were uh, we did it from the deck of the USS Midway, uh, old uh, aircraft carrier in San Diego. It was great. And I think the 11th year is the first year I was like, oh, you know what? We used to go we used to go wall to wall. Talk about nothing other than 9-11 for the entire show. And the 11th anniversary was the first year I was like, do we talk? I didn't know what to do. I was like, do we talk about the whole day? Or, And I think now, you know, my local show on Friday, uh, it's maybe half the show. But it, but it, we, it, like direct, specifically half the show. But it weaves, September 11th weaves into almost every other story that we tell that day. And also, and the thing, and the reason I don't really feel bad about that is because 9-11, I mean, has its roots in every story that we tell, always, every day. And the reason why is because on September 11th, I thought it was the clearest sense that we had as the American, of the American people, the clearest sense we had of what's important. It was the clearest sense we've had in, in a long time of what's important, of what's precious. You may remember last week, and I think it was a little later in the show, I want to say it was the second hour of the show, maybe even the third, and we were talking about Iran. And... Andrew called it. Had a wonderful phone call. We were talking about the differences between Persian culture and American culture when it comes to making deals and negotiations and a bunch of different things. And Andrew called in and he's still had three tours in Iraq or whatever. And he was talking about his experiences there. And I asked him a question and he said, uh, have you ever seen the book of Eli? And I said, no, I have not. I said, you got to watch it. And then I hung up the phone and we went to break and the guys back in New York City were like, you got to watch the book of Eli. So I went home that night and my wife and I, we watched the book of Eli. That's how it works. Book of Eli with uh, 
Denzel Washington. Now, I won't give it all away, but it's 30 years after nuclear war in America. So everything's gone, basically. And there's this one scene where Denzel Washington and Mila Kunis, her character, it's not, it's not like Denzel Washington is the one guy. Denzel Washington's character and Mila Kunis' character. Um, so it happened 30 years ago, and Mila Kunis' character is like, you're 20. So she wasn't around. She didn't know what America was like. And she's talking to Denzel Washington, and she says, what was it like? What was America like before the event? They call it the event. And he said, people had more than they needed. We had no idea what was precious and what wasn't. We threw away things that people kill each other for now. Isn't that amazing? We had, I, I love that line. And then now, that, but for the record, this is not what um, Andrew the caller was, was referencing. The point he was referencing was spot on as well. Um, but this is a different thing I got from the movie. People had, people had more than we needed. We had no idea what was precious and what wasn't. And we threw away things that people kill each other for now. And I feel like we've once again lost sight of what's precious. I do it all the time. Goodness gracious. That's, just, that's the curse of living in America. We have no idea what's precious. And when we, when we do have an idea, it's, it's always a thing. And it never is in the end. It's never a thing. I'll give a quick, a quick example. Um, Derek, last weekend, proposed to his girlfriend. They're in Los Angeles. And the weekend before that, he told his parents he was going to propose and told his mom that he was about to go buy an engagement ring. And his mom said, oh, don't go buy one. Don't go buy one. We have one for you. Here's the deal. Derek's great-grandfather was a lawyer in Germany in the 1930s. Things were obviously getting pretty bad for Jews in Germany. So he prepared to leave the country. This is like 1935. They applied to leave, and they were given permission. So this was early and everything, and they were given permission to leave. But there was one stipulation. They could not take anything with them. Only the clothes on their backs. That's it. They had to renounce everything. All of their assets, their home, their entire bank account, everything. All the money they accumulated, all the things... They accumulated. They had to give it all to the government in order to leave, in order to be given permission to leave. They didn't even hesitate. <laughs> Deal. Why? I mean, I'll just stop there. Like, why? What, cause, wh- because what's precious? Your family? Or the things? And I wonder, I mean, maybe some people, I'm not kidding, like maybe some Jewish people in Germany, they were given permission. They said, you got to give up everything. Maybe some of them were like, oh, all right, we'll stick it out. They weren't willing to give up everything. But this family was. One thing, though. Before they left, they took what money they had like in, in their possession because they couldn't go to the bank anymore. So they took what money they had, and they bought as much jewelry and precious stones as they could afford. And they wanted small items that they could easily hide because, again, they could only bring the things on their back. They couldn't even bring, couldn't even bring a suitcase or anything. And the idea was they were going to take these stones and use them to start a new life. They got out of Germany. They made it to Italy. Things got bad there. 
So they boarded a Japanese cruise ship and settled in Berkeley, California. And as they settled down here in California, they ended up selling all of their jewelry except for one piece. A single solitaire diamond. And that's the diamond that's been passed down in the family. And that's the diamond that mom is going to give to Derek to give to his fiance. Not a big diamond. I don't, I don't know the quality of it, the cut color quality. I don't, I don't know the four C's or whatever. But that doesn't matter because it's not the things that matter. Just ask Derek's great grandfather. He gave up all of them. He gave up all of them. During tragedy, we gained focus on what really matters. We did that during 9-11 as a country. I've never been alive or anything like that. And the craziest thing is when we lose sight of what's precious, we're, we're uh, more likely to lose it. And then what? And this is why I love reading stories and, and, and sharing stories of, of people in situations where modern luxuries don't distract them. Right? So that's why I love reading about the Spartans. Because it's just survival. That's it. There's no distraction. And I love telling stories about our troops uh, who served in the jungles or the deserts or the mountains. Because if you don't focus only on what matters, you die. And if you don't keep your attention, I, and I mean like, focus on what matters to survive physically. Like there's, there's no room for anything else. And also focus on what matters emotionally. Like keeping your thoughts on the brother next to you and keeping your thoughts on your family and whatever else. Like you got to focus only on the things that matter. Otherwise, you die. And I, I love reading stories like that because at least for me, it helps me focus back in on what's precious. And we got to get back to focusing on what matters in our families and in our lives. And I think that's the whole point of Never Forget. Now, the New York Times, we're 14 years later, and the New York Times is like, meh, <laughs> whatever. But if every year from this, maybe they didn't know what to say. I, I, maybe they ran out of lessons, to, and they're like, well, do we have to harp on the same old thing again about Islamic extremism? And you're like, no, it's not about that. I mean, it is, but there's, it's even deeper than that. So for the next, whatever, 100 years, we can keep the lesson of September 11th being, let's focus on the things that truly matter. I think that would be productive. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Let's just make sure we don't. I don't know. Dude, I just I think of the New York Times editor. Was there anyone in the room who was like, "Hey, uh, do you want to like put a put a story in the newspaper about nine eleven, or are we just gonna totally forget it, gonna skip it?" All right. They couldn't find one story. I don't know. Let's not never. Let's let's never uh, fall to that. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I got exactly five minutes. I want to say two quick things about this clock debacle in in Texas where the 14-year-old brought a homemade clock to school. But it's not it's not a clock. Like it's it's not a clock you see on the wall. It's a clock that looks like a bomb. I mean, not that it doesn't really look like a bomb, but I don't know, it looks more like a bomb than a clock, <laughs> right? I mean, so I want to make uh, two points. The president, of course, invited this 14-year-old to the White House. Pretty sure if this kid or anyone else brought that clock to the White House with them, pretty sure the security at the White House would not take kindly to it. <laughs> you put that thing on the, the metal detector, pretty sure the, the, the Secret Service would be like, oh, nice clock. Right, so let's just make sure we understand that. But here's the the main point from Kevin Williams. He says, you cannot go actively cultivating an atmosphere of paranoia and then pronounce yourself surprised by all the paranoia in the air. And that's exactly what the left has done with everything. It's just constant paranoia. And then they get shocked by it. So do the, so do the progressive you know, social justice warriors who are outraged about how this 14-year-old was treated. You created this culture. You made this. And don't for a second, and this is my second point, don't for a second pretend that this happened because his name is Ahmed Mohammed. <laughs> don't give me that. Now, this happens all the time. It has nothing, nothing to do with his race. I don't know how to be more clear about that. It has nothing to do with his race. Reason.com made a nice compilation of, uh, of stories from the last year or so. Little boy suspended for pointing finger like a laser gun. The note that the school sent home to his dad said he made a gun or sorry, he pointed a gun made from his hand at a fellow student. A gun made from his hand. School suspends kid for twirling pencil. Subjects him to five-hour mental evaluation. Girl writes about pot in her diary. School reads it. Suspends her for the year. Felony weapons charge for student who brought fishing supplies to school in his truck. Fishing supplies in his truck. Hearing examiner. School was right to suspend a little boy who chewed Pop-Tart into shape of gun. Pop-Tart in the shape of Toy gun made of paper gets kid tossed from school. This kid basically rolled up a piece of paper, made it like a bazooka. Drawing of cartoon bomb gets middle school students suspended in South Carolina. It's a drawing of a bomb. There's a big, like a, your old school, like Wiley Coyote black ball bomb, right? Suspended from school. So the names of the kids in question in these stories, Ethan Chaplin, Crystal Greyhorse, Cindy Chip, Cody Chitwood, Andrew Nussbaum, Asher Palmer, and Rhett Parham. None of those people were invited to the White House. Or there's, there's also, I forget the girl who uh, broke the class rule and was suspended 
when she said, bless you, after someone sneezed. Now, the dad of this kid says, uh, my son got suspended because of Mohammed and because of September 11th. I think that's what got my son mistreated. No, sir. He got mistreated because you send your son to a public school. This nonsense happens all the time. Now, Muslims in America, it's just an interesting, what percentage of Americans do you think are Muslim? It's 1%. Muslims are 1% of the American population. So it's just a matter of time before a Muslim kid was going to be accused of something as stupid as all these other kids. And in the end, I bet Muslims are accused probably about 1% of the time. It has nothing to do with race. And again, you can't go actively cultivating an atmosphere of paranoia and then surprised when everyone's paranoid. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three. Two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. It's a beautiful Saturday. Uh, uh, <laughs> that was the sound of, of annoyance and hesitation, but... I don't know. Uh, it's it's kind of a shame that we have to have this conversation, but I don't know. I shouldn't have that attitude. I'll I'll have this conversation as long as it's necessary. Bernie Sanders, the burn, socialist from Vermont, running for president, front runner in, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, he spoke at Liberty University the other day, which is a Christian and uh, conservative leaning college. Now, props to Bernie. For for speaking in unfriendly territory. I, I value the man who has conviction enough in his belief to go to uh, places where people do not have the same beliefs. I value that person, even if those beliefs are abysmally wrong, as his are. So the following exchange took place at the end of his speech. They did a little uh, one-on-one with some guy from Liberty. And uh, the question from the audience was, what would you do? Bernie, to bring healing and resolution to the issues of racism in our country. And his first uh, response was that no one should be judged by the color of their skin. And everyone's like, yeah, because obviously Uh, here's what he said right after that, though. Clip four. And I would also say that as a nation, the truth is that a nation which in many ways was created, and I'm sorry to have to say this from way back on racist principles, that's a fact, we have come a long way as a nation. Now I know, my guess is that probably not everybody here is an admirer or a voter for Barack Obama. But the point is that in 2008, this country took a huge step forward, David, in voting for a candidate based on his ideas and not the color of his skin. Now, I would argue (laughs) that many people did vote for Barack Obama because of the color of his skin. 
But I okay, right? Uh, they voted for him because of the color. In the same way that many people will vote for Hillary Clinton because of her chromosomes. I don't think. I mean, of course there are, but I don't think many people voted for Obama because of his policies, or at the very least, they maybe liked the policies, but they're like fanatic for him because of the color of his skin. But that's not the important part. I want to address the first thing that he said here, that we are founded on racist principles. This is very important. This is a narrative that your kids are learning in school from as early as possible and certainly throughout college. We must debunk it at every turn. Charles Cook put it very well. He said the sins from early in our brief American history, our sins were sins of omission rather than sins of commission. Right? So the sins are things we didn't do as opposed to sinning of things we did do. Let me word it like this. We were founded not on racist principles, as Bernie Sanders says. We were founded on revolutionary, extraordinary, uniquely virtuous principles that tragically were ignored. Principles that we did not live up to. Does that make sense? That is a huge difference. The founding principles of America were not black people are unequal. The founding principles of America were that all men are created equal. We're just not going to apply that to black men. But again, very different things. And I know there's a lot of people across the country who will dismiss that as semantics, right? Because they'll say, Slater, who cares? Right? Whether our founding documents said that black men were unequal or if they said all men are equal but it didn't apply to black people, in the end, black people were still treated unequally, so it's the same thing. No, it's not. It's not the same thing, and here's why. Our founding principles, because they were so perfect, laid the foundation for people in America to fight for that equality, to achieve that um, pinnacle. Martin Luther King Jr., his I Have a Dream speech. You would think people would uh, would know it well by now. You would, you would think the Bernie would know that speech. Maybe he's never heard it before. But Martin Luther King Jr. said, when the architects of our republic wrote the what? Magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. The magnificent words. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. The note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, in as it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the black man a bad check. A check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And he goes on. The entire basis of MLK's I Have a Dream speech. And this isn't like, I mean, this is his magnus opus. This isn't some r- random mini sermon he gave in the beginning of his career. I mean, this is, this is the speech. The entire premise, dare I say, of the civil rights movement was not 
that we were founded on racist principles and we need to change them. The entire premise of the civil rights movement was that America was founded on godly righteous principles and we need to abide by them. We need to fulfill them. We need to fully follow them. That is a huge difference. Huge difference. A check was written. A promise was made to all men in America, and we didn't follow through on that. But in the end, we did. <laughs> right? We are. And our founding fathers are to thank for that because many of them hoped we would. Now, this is not just Martin Luther King Jr.'s interpretation, who I, I will admit that I value MLK's interpretation on our founding documents and how they relate to, to racism more than the senator from Vermont. So, but, all right, but if you don't, if you don't, uh, let me, real quick, Frederick Douglass, one of my all-time favorite Americans, he was born a slave. And after he was free, he traveled the world, arguing that America was a racist, horrible, no-good country. And goodness, it made sense for him to do that, right? But then one day he decided, and he wrote this in his, uh, in his letters, he decided to sit down and learn about our founding. Which is something I wish Bernie Sanders and others would decide to do as well. Not just look at your experience or look at the experience of others, but learn about the founding. Because look at Frederick Frederick Douglass, born a slave for the love of peace. He, he wasn't born in a, in a racist uh, city or with abusive police or uh, before affirmative action. He was born a slave. And even he decided to sit down and learn about our founding. And when he did, he came back a changed man. He gave a speech in 1852, I think in London. He said the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. How can, it, how can the Constitution be at the same time what Bernie Sanders says it is and what Frederick Douglass says it is? How can it be a racist document, as Bernie Sanders says, and a glorious liberty document, as Frederick Douglass said it is? It can't be. One of those people are right, one of them's wrong. Frederick Douglass said, take the Constitution, and I defy anyone to find a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. So I disagree with Bernie Sanders that we were created on racist principles. We were founded on the principles of liberty. Now, did our founders achieve that ideal that they established? No, it's a constant goal that we need to fight to achieve today. But to say that we were founded on racist principles is an ugly, I won't say purposeful, I'll go with ugly, an ugly misunderstanding of the founding principles of our country. And if I can add one more thing, uh, the other day I talked to the first black city councilman in San Diego history. He got on a bus from Bakersfield to downtown San Diego in 1941. He was 18 years old. Got off that bus and was not allowed to eat in the restaurant across the street a street, or stay in the hotel on the other side of the street because of the color of his skin. He served in the military during World War II where he said he was treated worse in San Diego in uniform than German prisoners of war. And I said, hold on. 
there were German prisoners of war in San Diego? And he's like, oh, yeah, they were right down the, right to, like, Balboa Park. It's like, what? But, but then they're like, oh, yeah. But the other point is, you were treated worse as a black man in uniform in San Diego than the German prisoners of war. He said, yep. And I'll just cut to the chase. 28 years later, he was elected the city council member of that very same area that he wasn't even allowed to eat in a couple of decades earlier. An incredible, incredible man. And I said, sir, how could you have fought for our country? I don't get it. Like the Tuskegee Airmen and the rest, I don't get how you as a black man could have fought for our country where you weren't even allowed to eat in a restaurant in that country. And he said, I did it because America is the greatest country in the world. America is the best hope for freedom in the world. And the principles of our, of our country need to be lived up to. Not even kidding, that's what he said. And this was a, a day or two after Bernie Sanders said it. I didn't even bring up Bernie Sanders. But he, th- this first black city council member in San Diego basically said the exact same argument that I just made right here, that same argument that MLK made, the same argument that Frederick Douglass made, that we were not founded on racist principles, we just weren't living up to them. And he was going to take it upon himself to make sure that people do, as we all must. But that's very different than Bernie Sanders saying we're founded on racist principles. Now, why does he say that? And I got to take a break here. I'll just do this in 10 seconds. The reason he says that, and it's the same reason that uh, professors and teachers say that our founding fathers were slave owners, to denigrate and demean and belittle them and our founding documents. If Bernie Sanders can convince people that we were founded on racist principles and the Constitution is inherently racist, then people will say, well, why do we follow anything else in that Constitution? Why Why would I follow anything else that's in that racist document? Why would I believe in the, in the racist principles of our country? And once he does that, well, then he can do whatever he wants because there will be no constitution and there will be no founding principles to limit the power of those in D.C., which is Bernie and Hillary's and others' ultimate goal anyway. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders. We got time, right? It's Saturday. Hanging out. That's why I like the blaze. We're in no rush. Can sort of sit on some topics for a little bit longer here. One last thing to say about America being founded on racist principles, as Bernie Sanders said. This actually deserves a much longer study than the six minutes we have, but slavery in America was on the way out. Uh, I know this is a contested analysis here, but I believe that slavery in America was on the way out. As it was, the peak of slavery, gentlemen, I think we talked about this before. I don't know if you remember these numbers, um, but what percentage of white Americans owned black slaves in the peak of slavery? Peak of slavery. I would say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. I would say my first instinct would be like 60%, but then I would be like, nah, it's a 45%. I would say 45% of 
of Americans owned black slaves during the peak of slavery. 45% would be my, my answer. 1.4%. Okay. Peak. Peak of slavery. 1.4% of white Americans owned black slaves. Now you're saying, well, what about in the South? In the South, 6% of Southern whites owned slaves. 1.4% nationwide. Now, that doesn't tell the full story of slavery in America, I will admit, because those are only the numbers for white people who had black slaves. But 28% of free black men owned black slaves. 28% of black people in America at its peak, 28% owned black slaves. A much higher percentage than uh, white men. Now, I say all this because, again, I think slavery was on the way out. When 1.4% of Americans owned slaves, I mean, isn't the impression built that almost everyone had a slave? Like 89% of people had slaves or something like that? I mean, almost no one had a slave. And in 1808, which was as soon as possible, as soon as it was allowed in the Constitution, 1808, the slave trade was outlawed. So 1808, and that's as soon as it said it was allowed in the Constitution, no more slaves were allowed to be brought into America. And it was believed by most at the time that the entire practice of slavery would just die out on its own. Now, why didn't it? Why didn't it? I would argue the reason it did not die out on its own. Well, first of all, the um, uh, cotton gin didn't help things. But again, that's a different day. Um, I would say the reason it didn't stop on its own is because the argument for slavery changed. What do you mean? Slave owners, particularly in the South, changed, or they argued that America's founding principles were wrong. Abraham Lincoln in 1859 was invited to speak at an event in Boston. It was going to be the birthday of Thomas, uh, celebration for the birthday of Thomas Jefferson. And Abraham Lincoln declined, but he wrote a letter to the organizers. And this is what he said. He was referring in this letter to slave owners who were fighting to keep slavery alive. This is 1859. He said one slave owner dashingly calls them our founding principles, right? Think Bernie Sanders, right? So one slave owner dashingly calls our founding principles glittering generalities. Another bluntly calls them self-evident lies. And still others insidiously argue that they apply only to superior races. These expressions... The changing the principles of free government and replacing with those of classification and caste, well, they would delight a collection of crowned heads plotting against the people. These people, these slave owners, they're the vanguard of returning despotism. We must repulse them or they will subjugate us. So Lincoln's argument was that the people who were fighting for slavery were not living up to the standards of Thomas Jefferson's founding principles. They had to rewrite them. They had to dismiss them. They had to pervert them in order to justify the continuance of the practice of slavery. Think about that. These slave owners 
1859, as it was almost on the way, they had to say things like, no, 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 no. All men are created equal. That's a self-evident lie. They had to make that argument. And if they had to do that, then how can Bernie Sanders stand up here today and say that our founding principles are racist? If they were racist, then the pro-slavery crowd wouldn't have had to reject them. If our founding principles were racist, then the pro-slavery crowd would have embraced those founding racist principles. But they did not embrace them because they weren't racist. They had to change them. The idea that we live with founding principles or the fact that they were racist, that is a modern interpretation, a modern construct. And it's done to make the American people ashamed of our country and ashamed of our founding and think that our country is not even worth fighting for. We're just like everyone else, only worse. Nothing unique, unique, nothing exceptional. And I say to the people who peddle these lies, if I may paraphrase Lincoln, we must repulse them or they will subjugate us. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. I don't know what to do right now. Sorry, we were chit-chatting during the break. I don't know where to go next. Let's let's hang off on debate chat for a second. We'll do that in the next uh, the next hour. Here. I want to share this about um, environmentalism, global warming, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to bore you with everything that's happening in California right now, but we passed SP 350, which uh, adds a long story, but. The bill didn't f- fully pass as they wanted it. It, it. They only got like half of it. But next year they're going to come by and do the rest of it because the left is very patient in California with the things they want to do. And eventually, probably next year, uh, this will pass where we have to cut our gasoline use by 50%. <laughs> Which is, I'm sorry, I laugh just because the only way to do that is to like triple the price of gas. Gosh, it's so frustrating because it hurts poor people the most. That's what's so frustrating about it. Anyway, we've talked a lot about it on my local show. I won't bore you now, but just know that that's coming to, to your neck of the woods. Well, hopefully not. I don't know if anyone's that crazy, if any other state's that crazy. Um, Thomas Sowell did an interview back in 2004. And he said this line. I love this line. He says, intellectuals cannot operate at room temperature. Such a good line. Intellectuals cannot operate at room temperature. There, there always has to be a crisis. Some terrible reason why the superior wisdom and virtue must be, their superior wisdom and virtue must be imposed on the unthinking masses. It doesn't matter what the crisis is. A hundred years ago, it was eugenics. At the time of the first Earth Day, a generation ago, the big scare was global cooling, a big ice age. They go from one to the other. It meets their psychological needs and gives them a reason for exercising their power. Right? They're all, Thomas Sowell, there has to be a great scare. And environmentalism is the scare of the decade. It started with recycling. And I think we've talked about 
recycling before. I think we talked about it last Earth Day, about how recycling is just a giant, expensive, wasteful scam. It's it's total joke. It's based off the um, entirely false premise that we're running out of landfill space, which is absurd. I don't know. Whenever I bring that up, I'm always hesitant to go into the full <laughs> rant about it. But just know that, that recycling is always wasteful. Uh, there's like no reason <laughs> for recycling at all. But anyway, that was the beginning of just this rabid environmentalism. Uh, and now it's turned into this global warming. And now it's just crazed hysteria against gasoline. Anyway, I read this uh, great analysis the other day about environmentalists. And I just want to present it. I think it makes sense to me. I think I agree with it, but I'm not 100% sold. I just want to lay it on the table and see what you think. So Freud had a theory called displacement. Now, I disagree with other Freud things, but uh, I think this is one that we can all relate to. Displacement, it's when you redirect your aggression from one thing onto a powerless substitute. And we do it a lot. So let's say you're angry at your boss. You can't get angry at your boss, right? I mean, you can't yell at him, but you can get mad at the person who cuts you off on the way home from work. That's displacement. Your your kid, uh, you know, they'd be uh, maybe mad at their teacher for giving them a bad grade, but they're not going to yell at the teacher. You can't do that. But they can go home and punch their little brother. It's called displacement in psychology. So Julia Gorin's theory is that global warming has served as a Freudian displacement for the people who have turned their backs on the global war on terror. Right? So you take all the people who, who, who ignored the terrorist threat, they're taking all that and displacing it and redirecting it towards global warming. Just check out the language that environmentalists use. To describe global warming. Out of all the language that they could possibly use, they use language that's usually saved for war and now apply it to weather. It's the weirdest thing. And, and we don't even really know. I mean, we notice it, but we don't notice why they're doing that. So they'll say that global warming is a national security issue. Jerry Brown, the governor of California, says that. John Kerry, the secretary of state, says global warming is a national security issue. Al Gore calls it a planetary emergency. Bill Clinton says... Quote, it's the only thing, the only thing that has the power to fundamentally end the march of civilization as we know it. Not Islamic extremism, which truly wants to bring us back to the year zero. Not that. That's not ending the march of civilization. Global warming is ending the march of civilization. That is wartime rhetoric. That's rhetoric that that, uh, Winston Churchill would use against the Nazis and the Japanese. And now it's being used against the temperature. So when someone can't deal with a real threat, we displace our aggression on something or someone else. And when our leaders have chosen not to deal with terrorism, they've fixated their aggression and our attention on mother nature. They're not flexing their muscles at ISIS. They're flexing it at the SUV. And it's not the Patriot Act. That's going to save the day. It's the Kyoto Protocol that will, that will save you. It's weird. <laughs> I think that's the psychological explanation for it. I think it, so. Time Magazine. One last example. Time Magazine in 2008 
had a story. Uh, the headline was, it wasn't the story, it was the um, cover. How to win the war on global warming. It's a war on global warming. And the headline was the soldiers of Iwo Jima raising the American flag, but instead of the flag, it was a, a tree. Slater, I don't buy it. I, I, I see what you're saying, but you're, it's stretching. Okay. Uh, let me go one half step deeper here. Okay, so we have the psychological displacement here. Okay, we're, we're going to ignore this one threat over here, and we're going to displace our aggression that should be focused on Islamic extremism, and we're going to focus it on the weather. But it's not just psychological. It's physical as well. The left is, is they, they love the concept of wartime mobilization. They like the concept of, of uniting around a common enemy and mobilizing against that enemy. So here in California, so, so when you think poverty in America, what's, what state do you think has the highest rate of poverty? No offense to our friends in the South. I used to live in Tennessee, but I would say Mississippi. Right? I think that's sort of like, they're like the punch of the... I think Mississippi is the most... No, it's California. Right? So don't think Malibu. Don't think Beverly Hills. Don't think Rodeo Drive. Don't think uh, Sunset Cliffs in San Diego or La Jolla. Or the, or the, 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 you know, the beautiful uh, areas of, of San Francisco. 24% of Californians live in poverty. 24%. That's outrageous. Education, we are the worst. Regulations, we are the worst. And we could go on. There's no way that a train is the most pressing need of Californians now or ever. But there's a fanaticism around building a high-speed bullet train, around this wartime mobilization, wartime-like mobilization, against an enemy. And we're going to build this thing to destroy the enemy. The enemy's global warming, so we're going to build a train to destroy it. <laughs> it's crazy. And we're going we're gonna to unite around rationing, wartime rationing, and we're going to cut the use of gasoline by 50% to do it. Just like back in World War II, you cut back on chocolate and tin and nylon and all these other things. In, in, America, in California, we're gonna, uh, because we're in a war, we're mobilizing for war, we're going to ration gasoline. The left wants a World War II economy. Because that economy is a government command and control economy, where they command and control the industry and the production and the rationing. The left in Sacramento is in a they want a wartime economy. Except the thing is, they say they're fighting against the weather. But they're not. They're fighting against we the people. They say they're fighting the climate. I say they're fighting against the 24% of people who are living in poverty. And who knows, the other 25% of people who are living pretty darn close to it. It's all displacement. It's a drive from the left to do something meaningless. Because they're unable or unwilling to do the things that are necessary. Right? The imaginary threat is a lot easier to fight. Because there's no way to measure the results. <laughs> they could just say they're fighting and winning, 
or always losing. That's the thing. We're always losing. We always got to do more. And no one's going to question them on it because it's an imaginary threat. Be careful of people who are fighting imaginary enemies. That's nothing to mobilize against. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Sanders in the last segment, uh, I just kicked off this hour talking about Bernie Sanders uh, and him saying that we are uh, founded on racist principles. I feel like we thoroughly debunked that. Uh, I want to go to Lynette, who's in Iowa right now. Lynette, first of all, how are you? Uh, second of all, what is it like living in Iowa this time of year? <laughs> meaning, po- meaning po- I don't mean weather, I mean politics. Like, are, are you just... It must be awful. <laughs> absolutely. It is absolutely. <laughs> We're inundated every day and and uh um yeah, I'm I'm sick of it already and we've got yeah. so many more months to go. Oh, it must be so hard for you. I know some people, uh, some political junkies across the country wish they lived in Iowa this time of year because they want to no, be involved don't. in all that. <laughs> exactly. I, <know. laughs> I want to be involved, but not that much. Jeez. Uh, no, you don't. Not from uh, knocks on the door to, oh, yeah. And, you know, we have to deal with, I have three children who've recently get graduated college. And, of course, we, we get uh, plenty of them assailing the colleges and, and, uh, <laughs> It's wow. uh, yeah no. Stay stay I, I strong, Lynette. On anyone. <laughs> you can you can make it to the end. Oh, <laughs> what's you. what's on Later. your mind here? Well, first of all, I just want to say you are an awesome storyteller. I truly commensurate with Glenn Beck, and I always tell my husband I'm sad when your show ends. Oh, that's sweet of you. I Lynette. absolutely Thank love you. listening to you. But Thank you, Lynette. Just oh, just listening to this whole thing. I, just last night, I was doing a little light reading with uh, Locke and Montesquieu, and and the founders, and I learned something, and I'm in my early 50s, learned something I did not know, and that was that in the original Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson actually, and of course everybody loves to quote him because he was, oh, a slaveholder, um, he actually included a charge against the king about the evils of slavery. Hmm. I was never taught that, um, and it I don't want to read and bore everybody, but basically it said uh, Jefferson's original version provided that he, the king, waged cruel war against human nature in itself, violating its most sacred rights of life, liberty, and in the persons of a distant people who had never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transport thither. The heretical warfare um, is the warfare of the Christian king of Britain. Determined to keep an open market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this commerce. And I was shocked. I had no wow. idea that he actually, it was obviously taken out of the original declaration, uh, but I, mm-hmm. I just thought that that was fascinating. And sometimes I think we don't understand enough about our history and our founding 
and we believe whatever is fed to us. Beautifully said, Lynette. I'm reading it right now. Um, that's exactly. I'm, I'm reading it from the Library of Congress website, so uh, I don't need to ask you your source if it's some political hack book, Lynette. Uh, <laughs> it's not. It's legit. I didn't know that either. I no, didn't know I, that either. I really didn't, and I was so, shocked. And, so, and what do you? I can what do you get from source if you'd like? But <laughs> what, what is it? Yeah, what book are you reading? Um, Ameritopia, Mark Levin. Oh, nice. So, I decided what do you, I needed to get a little more educated. Well, anything from Levin is, is a good read. So what do you get from that? We only have 60 seconds, but what do you get from that? Because in the end, like you said, it was taken out. So Clearly, what, what and, and when, you look at, when you look at Locke and Montesquieu, and, and they were all absolutely abhorred slavery. And our founders, I mean, they quoted almost verbatim sometimes both of those people. And... <laughs> Our country was not founded on slavery. Our com- country was founded on the ideal that every man, every woman, every person has the right to their own person, their own property, whatever they can produce themselves. And that was the design. And unfortunately, we've gone so far askew. And I think that's why I'm reading now is I'm I'm terrified and I'm seeing my children being sucked into this idea that, oh, Bernie Sanders, Mr. Socialist, is going to give me everything for free, and I need to educate myself so I can re-educate them, and I feel like I let them down. No, you didn't. You didn't. It's never too late. Lynette, you're amazing. I wish we could chat more. we got to hit the top of the hour, though. Please stay in touch. Thank you for you're, taking you're, my call. My pleasure. You are awesome, and your kids are going to be great, I promise, because you may be learning the intellectual aspects of America, but I know that you've always had deep down a full understanding of the principles of america your kids have that understanding they just need to have the intellectual side of it now and it's never too late and you're doing that as well so not worried about you the rest of iowa the rest of our country we got to keep working on that you're listening to mike slater on the blaze radio network Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Later, Crusaders. How are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. All right. Can we do uh, a final debate wrap up? Uh, we talked earlier about Donald Trump. The first blow, the first punch that landed on the Donald uh, was uh, on Wednesday from a one Carly Fiorina, and all Donald Trump could do, as if he was the the sensei, after his young student finally learned the craft and punched him square in the nose, all Donald could do was smirk and smile back. It was a beautiful thing, and really he humbled out from that point forward. By the beginning of the date, he's, uh, date beginning of the debate, he's throwing out jabs to Rand Paul. Literally the first thing that Donald Trump says after his introduction is an attack on Rand Paul, even though Rand Paul had nothing to do with the question. Uh, and then by the end, he's giving high fives and back slaps to the guys to his left and right. So he really humbled out throughout the debate, and I think that's because of uh, Carly. So we chatted about that earlier. Um, let's do one last thing here. Do we have a uh, clip five? This is uh, Rick Santorum chatting about the minimum wage. Let's have this conversation for a moment. Oh, you, you may have missed this because this was in the uh, kids' table debate, which I watched 
So, you know, I'm sorry I didn't watch it. I can't lie. But I did see this part. Clip five. Lindsay, what percentage of American workers make the minimum wage right now? It's probably a small bit, but less the ones than one percent. Yeah, but I, I, so I, what you're basically saying, whatever Republicans up here saying is we're against the minimum wage, because if you're not for increasing it, nobody's making the minimum wage right now. That? The answer is that Republicans don't believe in a floor wage in America. Fine. You go ahead and make that 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 uh, that case to the American public. I'm not going to. Not from a party that supported bailouts. I didn't, but this party did. Not from a party that supports special interest tax provisions for a whole bunch of other businesses. And, but when it comes to hardworking Americans who are at the bottom of the income scale, we can't provide some level of income support. What I proposed is not anything what the president's proposed. I believe that would be harmful to the American public. But a 50 cents an hour increase over three years, which is what I'm proposing. So we would have a minimum wage, which would be roughly in the area of what it's been historically, about 5% of wages. To me, if you're going to talk to 90% of American workers, by the way, 90% of American workers don't own a bar. They don't own a business. They work for a living. They're wage, most of them are wage earners. And Republicans are losing elections because we're not talking about them. All we want to talk about is what happened to our business. There are people who work in that business. I was at, a, I was at the uh, uh, convention four years ago. And on the signs, on all of the seats the night I spoke was a sign that said, we built that. Because Barack Obama had, had talked about how businesses didn't build their own businesses. Then we trotted out one small business person after another for almost an hour that night talking about how they built their businesses. And that's wonderful. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't bring one worker on that stage. How are you going to win, ladies and gentlemen? All right. A lot going on there. So Rick Santorum supports the minimum wage. A couple things. First, yes, it's true that it's something like 1% of workers make the minimum wage. But the real question is, how many Americans are not working at all? Because of the minimum wage. Right? Does that mean, so yes, 1% of, of working Americans make the minimum wage, but how many people are not working at all because of the minimum wage? I want to address a few points here. I mean, Rick's heart's in the right place. No doubt about it. But we can't forget about the people who are hurt by the minimum wage. He, like many other people who support minimum wage, only focus on the few people who are helped. I want to talk about the people who are hurt, which is many, many more. The people who are making the true minimum wage, which is zero dollars an hour. So in the later debate, Ben Carson uh, was asked about minimum wage as well. And he had an interesting proposal. Um, I disagree with it, but but I, I like it for this reason. It gets people thinking that the minimum wage actually hurts people. Right, So here's what his proposal was. Two minimum wages. A starter wage and a sustaining minimum wage. A starter minimum wage and a sustaining minimum wage. Now, I don't know the, what the details of this would be. I don't know if Ben Carson's ever laid out more detailed, but I'll make it up. Let's say a starter wage would be $5 an hour. And a sustaining wage would uh, be $9 an hour and it would kick in uh, once you've been working somewhere for six months or something. I don't know. And again, I'm making those numbers up, but that would be the idea, right? You have a lower starting minimum wage. And then when you've been working for a certain amount of time, then you have a sustaining wage. Now, again, I don't support this because it's operating on the premise that the government should be in the middle of the relationship between the employer and the employee. And I don't think that's helpful for anyone. 
But I like the suggestion because it gets people thinking, well, wait a second, why would there need to be two minimum wages? Right? Like, why would there need to be a starting minimum wage at all? What's the purpose for that? And the purpose of that is no one's going to hire a kid out of high school with no experience for $15 an hour. Will not happen. So if you have a starter minimum wage, as Ben Carson is proposing, we're now acknowledging that the minimum wage hurts people. And that's never been done before in this entire minimum wage debate. No one has ever, you know, in a large scale, I mean, Milton Friedman has since the 70s, but no one on a large scale mainstream has ever argued that the minimum wage hurts people. This recognizes that fact. We are acknowledging that the minimum wage prevents people from working, which is why we would need a starter wage. Excellent. Now, again, I don't like the idea (laughs) in practice because it's just going to create more trouble. Like, let's say the sustaining minimum wage kicks in after six months. Well, then businesses are now going to have an incentive to fire someone after five months and 29 days, right? Sort of like certain Obamacare regulations kick in uh, for companies that have 50 employees, 50 or more employees. So a lot of businesses stop growing at 49 employees. That way they don't have to, if they hire one more person, then they have all these new regulations that they need to abide by. So they're not going to. So so I'm against it for that reason. But Carson's proposal gets people thinking. Maybe the minimum wage does hurt people. But back to Santorum's bigger point. His bigger point is, and his frustration is, and this is why I like his heart. I like where his heart's at. His heart is saying, listen, people... It seems as if we don't care about workers. Right? Santorum says, how are we going to win if 90% of Americans don't believe we care about them? It's a wonderful question, Rick. And you're right. We will never win if 90% of people don't think we care about them. Which means it's our job to articulate why raising the minimum wage or why we're against raising the minimum wage because we care about people. That's why I'm again, I'm not against raising the minimum wage because it hurts the business owner. I am, but that's not my primary reason. My primary reason against raising the minimum wage is it hurts low income people. See, the left has been able to control this narrative for long time, the whole time about the minimum wage. They've been able to frame the debate as, vote for me, I'll raise the minimum wage because I care about you. And people say, oh my goodness, they care about me. What do you mean they care about you? Oh yeah, they care about me. Look, they're going to raise the minimum wage because they care about me. We need to take it back and say, vote for me, I won't raise the minimum wage because I care about you. And people can say, wait, well, what, what do you mean? Oh, well, here's why raising the minimum wage hurts people. And you explain it and articulate it, and people say, oh, that makes sense. One time I was in college, and, and I, uh, someone said, oh, that's counterintuitive. And my professor said, no, 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 there's no such thing as something that's counterintuitive. It just means it hasn't been explained well enough yet. So if there's ever people who are like, wait, that doesn't make sense, that's counterintuitive, you are against raising the minimum wage because you care about me? That's that person saying, explain that to me. (laughs) That doesn't make sense yet, but it does when you explain it. 
We need to make the argument that raising the minimum wage hurts people and not do what Rick Santorum wants to do and fall into the left's game. That the only way to convince people we care about them is to, is to raise the minimum wage. Because you know what's going to happen? We're never going to be able to raise it as much as the left wants to raise it. That's the truth. We're never going to raise the minimum wage to as high as the left wants it. So if we say, all right, fine. We want people to care. We, we want people to think that Republicans care about them. So we're going to raise the minimum wage by a dollar. Okay, that way people are going to look at that and be like, oh, look, the, the conservatives, they care about me. They're raising the minimum wage by a dollar. You know what the left's going to do? They're going to raise it by two. And then people are going to say, well, both parties care about me, but one cares about me even more. At best. <laughs> they're probably going to be like, the, oh, look at the, the left. They're only going to throw me a dollar. They hate me. These people are going to give me two. And then we'll say, no, we'll give you $3 minimum wage. And they're going to say, well, we'll give you five. Right? They're always going to be able to raise it more than us. And then if we play that game, they're always going to win the battle of who cares about people more. I don't even want to play that game. We got to say, hey, we care about people who don't have a high school degree. We want them to be able to find work so that they can get their foot in the door and climb the ladder. So we're against raising a minimum wage, which makes it impossible for that person without a high school degree to ever find a job. And we care about teenagers who need job experience. And they're not getting it. What's the unemployment rate for teenagers right now? It's like 30% or something. So we're against raising the minimum wage. Heck, we're for immigrants who may not speak English well. But we want them to be able to get a job so they can learn English and learn a skill. So we're against raising the minimum wage. Remember uh, last week or two weeks ago, we shared the story of a woman in D.C. Uh, came from... May have been Mexico. I don't remember. And couldn't speak a lick. She was an accountant. It was somewhere else. It was someone in South America. Argentina or something. She was an accountant. Could barely speak English. Came to America. Got a job washing dishes. And then she got really good at that so she could keep another eye out on other things that she could do in the back of the kitchen. She ended up making shrimp scampi and then she moved up the ranks, moved up the ranks, moved up the ranks. Ten years later, now she owns a bunch of restaurants in Washington, D.C. And she says, don't raise the minimum wage. The minimum wage raising it higher wouldn't have helped me when I was an immigrant and I came to America for the first time because no one would have hired me who could barely speak English and had no marketable skill. No one would have hired me for $15 an hour. It's the $5 an hour that got my foot in the door and got me to where I am now. So I'm against raising the minimum wage because I care about immigrants and I want them to be able to find jobs and work their way up the ladder. Just like I care about younger people and people without high school degrees or whatever. I'm against raising the minimum wage because I care about people. Because I care about workers. We have to take that debate back. Because if we do what Rick Santorum does and says, uh, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll cave and we'll raise the minimum wage to convince people we care, you're never going to win that battle. It's never going to happen. All right, take a break. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. We got six minutes. Or so. I'll do this briefly. Um, what I'm about to share to you is 100% true. Uh, and if we have an ornithologist listening now who can back this up, that would be much appreciated. one 888 or Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, this is from uh, G. Murphy Donovan. Read this analysis, and then I had to go watch a few nature clips on the YouTube to confirm that this is true. Uh, and it absolutely is. So for the sake of time here, uh, I-, I will just come out with the punchline. I will be talking about the cuckoo bird, and which is a real bird, the cuckoo bird and the reed warbler. We are the reed warblers. You decide who the cuckoo birds are. Here's the deal. The cuckoo bird is one of a handful of birds who lay their eggs in the nest of other birds. So the cuckoo bird spends most of its time in Africa, and then it it, uh, lays eggs up in Europe. So the cuckoo bird will fly to England, find the nest, a nest, that belongs to a reed warbler, and watches and waits until the mama reed warbler lays her three eggs. And then the reed warbler goes and flies off to get some food. And when she does, the cuckoo bird flies into her nest, I swear to you, eats one of her eggs, and then lays one of her own. Right? So the cuckoo bird eats one of the reed warbler eggs and then lays one of her own eggs, replacing her egg with the one that she just ate. And then flies away. That's it. So the reed warbler flies back, doesn't notice the difference. Can't tell the difference. And then incubates for, you know, however long, thinking that that cuckoo bird's egg is one of its own. Right? They switches it. The cuckoo bird switches the egg. Now, here's the craziest part. The cuckoo baby bird hatches a few days before the other birds. And the reed warbler, mom, doesn't doesn't realize it's different or... Is just super confused. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? And treats it as its own. But the baby cuckoo knows what's going on. And kicks, just within a few days, kicks the other eggs out of the nest before they're even hatched. So now it's the only bird left in the nest. Now here's my favorite part. The sound that a baby cuckoo bird makes. Only a baby cuckoo bird, an adult cuckoo bird makes a very different sound, but a baby cuckoo bird makes the sound not only of one reed warbler, but makes the sound of a handful of reed warblers. So if you closed your eyes and you heard the sound of a baby cuckoo bird, if you knew what you were listening to, you would say, oh, there's a bunch of reed warblers. But it's not a bunch of reed warblers, it's one cuckoo bird. So the mama reed warbler is all freaking out because, first of all, all the eggs are killed. So there's only this one bird. It's huge. <laughs> it takes over the entire nest in a couple of days and keeps hearing it. It, like, it sounds like there's a bunch of reed warblers. But it's not. It's just one. But it doesn't know what to do. So it keeps going to find food. 
and bringing it back and then finding more food and bringing it back and finding more food and bringing it back because the mama bird thinks there's a bunch of reed warblers there. I'm not, it's the craziest thing, I promise you. Go look, look up YouTube, look up cuckoo bird and reed warbler. You'll know I'm not making it up. So you have the craziest picture of this this giant reed warbler, excuse me, this tiny reed warbler feeding this giant baby cuckoo bird. It's like three times the size of the mama reed warbler. But the reed warbler is just blinded by the cries for more. <laughs> and she just keeps working, finding food for a baby that's not even hers. And worse than that, like the, a, a bird that killed her real babies. It's wild. Now, bring all this up because there are many animals that we use to make political metaphors. We have the hawk, the eagle, the dove. But perhaps it's time we add the cuckoo and the reed warbler to the mix. I will leave it for you. I, will, I am not making this comparison, but I will leave it to you to make the comparison that perhaps the American people and the people of Germany and other parts of Europe are reed warblers. And I will leave it up to you. I'm not saying it. But others have said that many people coming into these countries are like cuckoo birds, disguising themselves as the natives and tricking us when they get here. Now, (laughs) I'm not saying that. But maybe looking, watching, when you watch these YouTube videos of reed warblers, you may be thinking, well, hold on. Hey, freeloading mama cuckoo bird. What are you doing? Raise your own babies. And maybe it's a stretch, I don't know, to say, hey, Arab League. I don't know. Why don't you take in some of those Muslim migrants? As opposed to them going west, taking over reed warblers' nests, and making it their own. I- I'm just saying. I'm just just saying. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. I don't want to disappoint Rick. Rick sent me an email or a tweet. It uh, sent me some very nice compliments. Rick, I always appreciate it, sir. And then said, uh, I will probably shed a tear in the next 60 minutes. And I was thinking, oh, I don't think I have any sad stories today. So I, I don't think we'll, we'll go there um, today. But I don't know. we still got 20 minutes left. Um, I do want to chat about this, though. I think this is important and you know what this is another example okay so we're just talking about minimum wage and rick santorum said well we need to raise the minimum wage because we're never going to win elections if people think we don't care about them and my argument is no 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 we have to explain that we're against raising the minimum wage because we care about people like that's why it's not because we're greedy it's not because we're for the rich it's not because we're supporting the business owners although yes for supporting business owners it's because we care about low income people those who are making minimum wage those who are making just above the minimum wage and those who can't get a job because of the minimum wage those are the people that we're in support of and that we're we're fighting for and it's the same thing with 
sexual assault on college campuses. This is a very interesting thing that's going on. So first of all, it's important to know that sexual assault on college campus is lower. The rate of sexual assault on college campus is lower than the rate of sexual assault off college campuses. Okay, so that's just an important point. Way too high. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, way too high. But you're actually, if you're a woman, you're actually safer on a college campus than off it. But that's not the important thing. Because of the whole war on women narrative, the left has been using the gender pay gap. Um, what was the other one? Gen- uh, abortion and sexual assault on campus. Those are the three women's issues that they're gonna that Hillary's gonna keep pushing. So, because sexual assault on campus became one of the things, there's been this strange push to take sexual assault out of the courtroom and move it to this tribunal, like this university tribunal system, where if you are a woman and you're accusing someone of sexually assaulting you, you don't go to the police, you go to the dean or whoever. You go to this board and the board determines what to do. And this is supposed to be like this is what they're pitching this as being tough on crime, like t- tough on assault, tough on rape. And my argument is no, th- this is this is weak on crime. This is weak on rape. Let me back it up a second. We'll bring everyone on the same page. So last week there was a hearing uh, in D.C. on sexual assault. And this is the congressman from Colorado during said hearing. Clip six. I think we're talking about, again, a, uh, now so if you're saying it's, it would be a public, uh, a public university, uh, can they uh, say we want to use a reasonable likelihood standard for purposes of ex- expulsion or, or whether a student can uh, I don't think that that would have any chance of satisfying a due process challenge. But I also but a say, preponderance of evidence would. Is that, is n- that? No. I Here's mean, a preponderance key, right? of evidence can, in some circumstances, pass it and couldn't fail in others, depending on what other procedural protections it's coupled with. Okay. When a preponderance well, of evidence it seems can, like we ought to provide more of a, of a legal framework then that allows a reasonable likelihood standard or a preponderance of evidence standard. I mean, if there's 10 people that have been accused and, you know, under a reasonable likelihood standard, maybe one or two did it. Seems better to get rid of all 10 people. Uh, we're not talking about depriving them of life or liberty. We're talking about their transfer to another university. Let's be clear right, about this. Know. That is not oh, what we're talking about. Right, and the people are applauding. Okay. couple things. He just said, let's say there's, there's 10 people accused of, of raping people on, in college. Right? 10 guys. And for each guy, they, you know, eh, may, like 20% chance they did it. But in the end, only two of the guys, act, two of the 10 actually actually raped someone. He's saying, ah, it's better to just expel all 10 of them. <laughs> what? Really? It's, you know, it's interesting because it's all against the war on women. We keep having this argument about campus assault from the girls' perspective. But in doing so, we're violating the due process of the guys. So here we have, to the point where we have a congressman saying it's okay to expel eight people from college, even though they didn't do anything wrong at all. 
And then, of course, goes on to say, yeah, what's the big deal? We're not depriving these guys of life, liberty, or anything, right? And throws a little chuckle in there. We're just transferring them to another university, for crying out loud. What's the big deal? Well, easy for you to say, Congressman. But if you're accused of being a rapist, that label is with you for a long time, if not forever. And I have to imagine that other universities are not keen on accepting people who were kicked out of their other school because they were a rapists. Or deemed a rapist. But this is my main point. And please keep this in mind when you hear people talk about campus assault and how we need to be tougher on it and all that stuff. The congressman thinks by expelling these 10 guys, he's doing women a favor. He thinks that by having a lower standard for kicking guys out of college, he's helping the female victims. He thinks that by making sexual assault something that the university takes care of, that instead of the court system, that he's helping women. He's not. And it's very simple to know why. Let's say these 10 guys are expelled, and let's say two of them actually did rape someone on campus. Why is the congressman fine with these two guys going to another college campus? Right? What about the women on the other college campus? Right? All you, you, all you just moved the problem. You just moved. You just kicked the two guys out of the school. And they're going to go, and you're saying you're going to go to another school. So these two guys are now going to go to another school after they just raped people at the one school. How is that helping the women at this new school? It's, it's so bizarre. So what this congressman did by throwing the book at all 10 guys, you had the eight guys who are innocent. Their punishment was far too harsh. They didn't do anything. And then you have the two guys who actually did rape women. Their punishment was far too light. They should be going to jail. I I don't understand people who think that college rape is something that should be handled by a university. They're not equipped to do that. Rape is a criminal act. The guy who did it should go to jail. They should go through a criminal proceeding because that's in the best interest of the accused. Of the accused. And it's also in the best message of the victim and any other potential victims in the future, because now we're going to get that rapist off the streets, out of the college campus and into the slammer. It's so weird. Like, so to bring it back to the minimum wage conversation, we have to look at these arguments and think and put it through the lens of what it means to be a conservative. Again, being a conservative means we look out and we protect the most vulnerable. I'm against raising the minimum wage because I'm in favor of protecting the most vulnerable, those who have the least skills and the lowest education and can't find a job and won't get hired for $15 an hour, so they're going to be unemployed instead. That's why I'm against raising the minimum wage. And I'm also against having universities judge rape and sexual assault charges because... A, that doesn't protect the accused, and we have due process in America for a reason. And B, it's not even good for the victim, and it's not good for the other potential victims. Because the worst that a university can do is kick someone out of school. But the person who raped someone deserves er, deserves much more punishment than that. It's wild. So I'm I'm for keeping sexual assault cases in the court system because I want to protect A, the accused, and B, the victims. And any potential victims. 
so weird that taking it out of the court system and moving it into the uh, schools is, is deemed as the, the tough-on-crime thing. Far, far too weak on the people who did it. And far, just wildly unfair to the people who are innocent. So broken. Goodness gracious. So keep that in mind as we keep moving forward. Universities, and there's no standard system either. That's the craziest thing, too. Every university has their own thing. There's, there's some universities where there's a person who will read a report from uh, the, the, the victim and a report from the accused and then just decide who they believe more. <laughs> and there's no cross-examination or anything like that. It's like, well, that, that's, not, that's not right. Can't possibly be the right way to do it. If that person is assaulted, it's got to go to the court system. And take the take the 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 person down who did it. One eight hundred seven six or one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. The left weak on crime. So I, you know what I'd say? I'd do a bumper sticker on this. Be like, hey, uh, progressives, hey, congressman from Colorado, why why don't you want to protect women? Right, you want to kick rapists out of one college and just have them apply to another one? Why why are you so anti women at that other college? Why do you not really want to protect women from rapists? Because I do. I want rapists to go to go to jail, not just go to a different college. Why do you hate women so much? Right? <laughs> Take the debate back. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Timothy Dolan, Cardinal, Catholic Church, wrote an article the other day about St. Patrick's Cathedral in uh, New York City. They've been restoring the cathedral for the last like three years or so. Beautiful if you've never been. Swing on by next time you're in New York City. And uh, they're getting ready for the Pope's visit coming up here in a few days. And the Cardinal was walking around the other day and people were working and he asked one of the workers, he said, what's your job here? And the man said, oh, I'm working on the, uh, the mortar here on this wall. And then another man said, oh, I'm, I'm doing the rewiring on these lights right here. And the carnal went up to a third man and said, what are you doing? And the man beamed. He said, I'm rebuilding a cathedral. And one day I'll bring my grandkids here and show them what I helped to do. I love that. I'm, I'm, built, I'm rebuilding a cathedral. <laughs> I think we need more of that in America. You know, we live in a strange culture where um, it, we, we've almost made not working the ultimate goal. And I don't mean like vacation and stuff like that and weekends. I mean, just work, like less work. Like work is inherently a bad thing, something to be avoided if possible. After I leave uh, here in uh, three minutes, I'm going to go uh, get ready to MC an event called uh, or for an organization called Solutions for Change. And they, their mission is to end family homelessness. And their f- principle number one is 
you have to work. <laughs> you have to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and work. And if you don't have the job skills, we're going to make up a job for you just so you go through the motions and you learn the skills necessary. And we're going to pay you to do it. But the important part is getting up. Wake up, suit up, show up. That's what their mission is. That's their, that's their motto. Wake up, suit up, show up. Work. Because work is not dehumanizing. Work is not drudgery. Work is honorable. It is noble. It is uplifting. Speaking of the Pope, the Pope said there's no... How about this? Look at this sentence. This is so good. He said there's no worse material poverty. There's no worse material poverty than the poverty which prevents people from earning their bread and deprives them of the dignity of work. There's no worse poverty than the poverty which prevents people from earning their bread and deprives them of the dignity of work. The dignity of work. You know, especially with, you know, work to welfare programs. And, and, you know, and if you ever propose that, people are like, oh, you can't have that. No, no, no. I mean, it's not that you can't have that. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only thing that matters. Like, that, that's the most important thing. So I bring it up just as a, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people listening now, perhaps are like the Slater kid. He's got a good talks on the radio a couple hours a day. He has no idea what hard work is like. Yeah, that's probably about right. I salute you and I thank you because you are a part of a bigger purpose than the, the thing you do every day. And if you've ever thought the thing I'm doing is insignificant or it doesn't matter, try to find the bigger thing, right? Like the one guy working at the cathedral, he's working with the mortar on the bricks or whatever, right? That's insignificant, but not when you put it in the context of, oh, I'm rebuilding a cathedral. Let's all of us try to find the bigger purpose in what we're doing. Because that way we won't get discouraged by thinking, oh, I am just a... My two least favorite words when you put them together. I'll do three. I'm just a. My three, I'm just a. No, 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 no. You're not just anything. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I hate that we only get three hours a day to spend with each other. Or three hours a week. We have the whole week. On our Facebook, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And on Monday, we're going to release our first abortion story video. And we're going to release one every day for the next week. So it's going to be a big week on the Facebook. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.